Um, we're going to begin with uh, <clears throat> recent developments in Old and the New Studies that challenge the organic integrity of the Testaments. In other words, uh, a lot of um, scholars, including evangelical scholars, believe uh, that the New Testament sometimes even often uh, reads in meanings to the Old Testament when they quote it or allude to it that were not originally there. Um, some of the more evangelical uh, interpreters who take that position still have a high view of the authority of the Bible. Um, they'll contend that Jesus and the apostles uh, preached the right doctrine, but from the wrong text. Uh, in fact, the title of the book with that very title, uh, because uh, that's what's claimed, so that they were inspired in the doctrine, but their exegetical method was off base. So uh, what I'm going to be reading are reasons that not just uh, um, those outside of evangelicalism uh, see New Testament writers misusing the Old Testament, but also this includes, in fact, um, those within evangelicalism. In fact, it includes uh, Reformed interpreters, whether Reformed Baptist or Reformed Presbyterian. In fact, I was at Westminster Seminary for 11 years, and right before I went, I went in 2010, around 2007, 2007, that they had a, a debate there theologically on this very topic, and uh, uh, it was quite a controversy. And um, so, uh, at some of our most conservative seminaries, uh, at least apparently. Uh, this is a topic of debate. I know at other major seminaries that I could mention by name now. Uh, I won't because I don't mind mentioning the one I was at um, because I was on the uh, tail end of that um, uh, debate as I came. But, uh, but there are other very, many would consider very reliable seminaries where some of the professors uh, have written dissertations, published them, and, and contend uh, this, this very thing, that uh, what the New Testament writer is doing in a particular instance uh, was not using the Old Testament uh, according to its original intention, even developing it according to its original intention, but in fact uh, <clears throat> was reading in something that cannot be found there. So, uh, so it's a very interesting view for those evangelicals who hold that position and still have this uh, even view of inerrancy uh, very intriguing. So let's look first, then we're going to look at uh, challenges to the uh, uh, organic connection. I like to use the word organic. Uh, there's, I, I believe, whenever the new quotes or alludes, uh, uh, quotes the Old Testament or alludes to it, that, that there is some kind of organic link that is a, uh, some sort of thread that is related to the original intention of uh, the Old Testament author. Okay. So now in 1989, uh, I published an article titled, Did Jesus and His Followers Preach Right Doctrine from the Wrong Text? 
a subtitled and exegetical examination of the presuppositions of the writers of the New Testament. And uh, this was an article uh, that surveyed the recent history of the use of the Old Testament up to that point in 1989, uh, especially focusing on the works of a scholar by the name of Richard Longenecker. Some of you may know that name. He's written a, a commentary on Romans. He's written a number of other things. He's written uh, a book on the use of the Old and the New and some essays. And uh, he had argued that, that the trend of the New Testament was to use the Old Testament in non-contextual ways, which we today, today would consider illegitimate and would certainly not imitate uh, in the way we interpret the Old Testament today. So Longenecker was arguing that, in fact, New Testament writers, uh, and, and we'll look more at this, uh, did uh, uh, interpret the Old Testament uh, in ways that really did not get at the original intention of the Old Testament. But in fact, they were influenced by Jew Jewish hermeneutical uh, uh, methods. So he would be an example, by the way, of, of an evangelical. He's, I think, considered himself and does consider himself, I believe, broadly as an evangelical. He used to teach at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I'm going to summarize the essence of that article for a few minutes this morning, and then I'm going to move on what's happened uh, since I wrote that article, uh, a, a lot of other uh, movements have occurred, uh, uh, which give people reason to think that the New Testament writers did not use the Old Testament um, organically. Um, so, uh, and, and, and by the way, the, this is hugely important because uh, there are also pastors who hold this, this view I'm talking about, uh, that the New Testament writers did not interpret contextually. And one thing I'm concerned about practically and pastorally, just by, by way of parenthesis here, is if people, every time you come to an Old Testament quotation or an allusion, and, and if you're going to handle it uh, uh, in a significant way, and you, you believe that the New Testament writer is not getting at the intention of the Old Testament, I think that that really begins to um, chip away at the concept of the unity of the Testaments and the unity of the Bible. And I, I think it eventually will cause a lack of confidence uh, among the people of God in the unity of the Bible. Of course, some would say, well, if it's the case that the New Testament writers do this, then yeah, uh, people need to get this concept. Yeah, the Bible isn't so unified as we used to think. So let's look at the uh, first uh, objection. The first objection is... Um, the influence of a Jewish hermeneutic, you can see right here. That's the first uh, argument that the Jewish writers of the time were uh, hermeneutically crazy from our perspective, hermeneutically wild. And uh, the New Testament writers uh, were so um, uh, culturally uh, uh, part of um, uh, that, that Jewish uh, environment. After all, the first Christians were Jews. Uh, apostles obviously were Jews and the Jewish Christians. And so it makes sense that, you know, they learned interpreting the Bible the way Judaism interpreted it. And so Judaism interpreted it often in ways that we would consider uh, um, wild and, and non-contextual. And so, um, uh, 
This is why we find them doing this. So the degree of continuity and discontinuity in both theology and an interpretive method between Christianity and its Jewish environment has been a huge debate. And we're going to see it's really debated about, well, what was the Jewish hermeneutic, right? In uh, one wild, widely held position is, as I've already said, that Jesus and the apostles used non-contextual and atomistic Jewish hermeneutical uh, methods that were used by their Jewish contemporaries. And we certainly today would consider these methods, as we're going to see, illegitimate. And yet we're assured by some evangelical scholars holding these positions that nevertheless, these, the writers were guided in their interpretation uh, by the example of Christ, and they were guided by the whole. Uh, imitate their methods today. Okay. Uh, now, Longenecker would say that they do use the Old Testament sometimes in, in ways we would consider it good and legitimate. So it doesn't say this is the case uh, everywhere. Now, a recent development of this view goes further and contends that New Testament, and in fact, different from Longenecker, we should follow these wrong ways. That's kind of intriguing. So that the interpreter really is just kind of left to really read in what you think you should read in, as long as you think you're guided by the Holy Spirit. Uh, I remember talking to a student um, in the cafeteria of a seminary that, that I taught at, um, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, and the student was uh, telling me about uh, how what he discovered in the New Testament recently in his reading of, of in his devotions and. Uh, it was about the use of an Old Testament passage, and, and he said it was amazing because what I discovered uh, yesterday was diametrically the opposite of what I understood that passage to mean a few weeks ago. And, you know, is the Holy Spirit uh, amazing that we, that we get these deep meanings? Well, I'm, I'm happy for deep meanings. I don't think we'll ever completely uh, delve into the depths of uh, the interpretation of the Bible exhaustively, but I don't believe in contradictory meanings. And um, uh, the meaning he was holding was one that, that would contradict its original meaning. So uh, I raised some questions uh, in my Thamelios article in 1989 about, some, about these kind of approaches uh, that the Jewish hermeneutics influenced the New Testament writers. And um, and, and this, this particular uh, perspective continues to that uh, among, by some evangelicals and, uh, and, and of course, those, those outside evangelicalism. Um, so my starting point uh, in 1989 was to observe that it wasn't at all clear that non-contextual methods of exegesis were as central to Jewish hermeneutics as many people claim. Long, long after just assumes it give some examples and, and that sort of thing. In fact, uh, one particular work by a fellow who was at the Tyndale House for quite a while, he recently retired, guy by the name of David N. Stone Brewer, he did his dissertation at the University of Cambridge uh, on pre-70 AD rabbinic exegetical methods. And um, what he found was, by the way, his it was published, uh, the title 
is techniques and assumptions in Jewish exegesis before 70 AD. Techniques and assumptions in Jewish exegesis before 70 AD. And uh, he found that in every case, you could tell they were trying to get at the original meaning. They may not have always succeeded, but you could tell they were trying to get at the original meaning. Uh, so that, that, that was a very interesting study uh, done, supervised by William Horbury. Um, now, another issue with regard to assuming that Jewish hermeneutics is wild and crazy hermeneutically is that uh, in Qumran and in Jewish apocalyptic, there is uh, some characteristically contextual exegesis, especially in Jewish apocalyptic, you would think, wow, if, if anything's going to be weird in using the Old Testament, it's going to be apocalyptic literature. Well, in fact, I wrote my dissertation under Barnabas Lindars at Cambridge and J.P.M. Sweet on the use of um, Daniel in Jewish apocalyptic and in the book of Revelation. And what I found was that in Jewish apocalyptic, there was an amazing concern for uh, contextual exegesis. That doesn't mean that there wasn't some bad exegesis, but there, there was significant concern for contextual exegesis. That was published uh, uh, under the title of the use of Daniel in Jewish apocalyptic literature and in the book uh, of Revelation or in, in John's uh, apocalypse. So those were two examples, uh, significant examples where, you know, uh, Maybe later, after 70 AD, some uh, weird uh, Jewish exegesis occurred that was atomistic, but, uh, you know, we really ought to consider that the Jewish apocalyptic, even Qumran, and uh, in, in rabbinic texts, uh, rabbinic exegesis, what, uh, was significantly contextual. You find significant examples. Then I had a student of mine at Wheaton, uh, he was a doctoral student, and uh, we part of the curriculum, we made them take a course at another university. So he went to the University of Chicago and studied under a rabbi. And it was a course on Kainaitic Midrashim from 70 AD to 200 AD. Now the particular text that uh, they were studying in that class was the Makilta de Rabbi Ishmael and Sifra numbers. So Makilta de Rabbi Ishmael and Sifra numbers. And he said that the professor, who was a rabbi, uh, said the use of the Old Testament in, in these materials, which are later Jewish uh, writings, were amazingly contextual. So that was a shock to me because I had an impression that the later material was uh, just sort of a little bit more wild hermeneutic, hermeneutically. But even this assumption that Jewish hermeneutics would influence, uh, whether bad uh, or good, that it would influence the New Testament writers. I think that itself needs to be questioned. Again, one might assume, well, they were in that environment, would they you know, be acculturated to the hermeneutical methods of the day? We sometimes refer to the phrase, weren't they socially constructed beings in every aspect of their being, including hermeneutics? Well, not necessarily. There's somebody called Jesus who came along. And uh, we're, we're going to see uh, that some scholars have uh, said that he was the one 
who radically influenced the interpretative methods of the New Testament writers. And uh, his methods were not necessarily influenced by Jewish methods. In fact, even some of the Germans, who are not evangelicals who work in this area, have said, be very careful about assuming uh, when you study the New Testament use of the oath, don't think you have to study Jewish interpretation first of that passage of the Old Testament in order to understand uh, that passage in the New Testament. Uh, you need to look at the context of the New Testament first, of that passage, interpret it first in light of its context, and, and try to see what is the author doing in this context in the light even of the book, say of Romans or of Galatians. Um, and then they said, and then later, yeah, look at, some, look at the Jewish uses, see, see if that can help. But don't assume that uh, Judaism is going to influence these writers uh, first. Look at the use, look at uh, uh, the, the context first. Now, uh, I'll mention a couple of writers in, in uh, Germany have said this significant writers. Hans Hübner, Hans Hübner in his Biblische Theologie des Neuen Testament um, has, has argued this. Uh, D.A. Koch in his scripture as witness to the uh, uh, gospel. It's actually on uh, how Paul uses uh, the Old Testament. They both say, be very careful about assuming that uh, Jewish influence is going to be crucial. So, so these are very important qualifications. Now, it's often claimed that an inductive study of the New Testament, in fact, reveals a predominantly non-contextual exegetical method. But in fact, of all the many citations and allusions found in the New Testament, only a very few plausible examples of non-contextual usage have been noted as being really clear. And uh, now, a number of these in, uh, include cases of typology, like Hosea 11.1 uh, and Matthew 2.15, where uh, the gospel writer says, um, out of Egypt have I called my son. In Hosea 11.1, uh, it's not a prophecy, but in, in Matthew, it says, this was to fulfill what was written through the prophet out of Egypt that I call my son. Hosea 11, 1, it's just a historical reflection. Out of Egypt, I call my son. I mean, I brought Israel out of Egypt. And so to read a prophecy into a historical uh, narrative violates anything you would have learned in Hermeneutics 101. You would fail if you said that that was a prophecy at least in some courses, um, for, uh, taught by some professors. So that, that, that typology is a beautiful example here uh, of where people like Longnecker and others would see non-contextual use of the other. How can you take a historical uh, uh, incident and say that was prophecy? So uh, that's, that's a good example right there in and of itself. Now, there there are really four different ways that um, Longmaker and others have argued that um, uh, New Testament writers reflect the Jewish hermeneutic. One is called ad hominem argumentation, ad hominem argumentation. And what that is, I mean, it literally means uh, uh, from the man uh, or um, uh, to the man, or maybe even preposition against the man. 
And um, what it means is you don't really attack the argument, you attack the person. You know, like, I'm not sure I'm going to listen to Beale. He's, he's got such a, you know, mundane uh, American accent. He dresses shabbily. I don't know, you know, what he's saying can be the case. And, um, so on. Uh, and so what is argued is that Paul, for example, in Galatians 3.19, where he talks about uh, angels reveal the law, uh, many would say, well, you can't find that anywhere in the Old Testament. What he's doing is outdoing the Jews at their own wild exegesis. He's responding in, in uh, um, uh, Galatians to uh, the false teacher's wrong use of various parts of the Old Testament. He said, I can outdo you on that. It's kind of an ironic sort of thing. Oh, you like to do wild exegesis to pro propel your false teaching? I can outdo you. And so uh, that's what we mean. Or the Exodus of Baal in 2 Corinthians 3, 13 to 18, the Baal of Moses' face in Exodus is interpreted to be a Baal of the minds of the unbelieving. I mean, you know, uh, Paul again would be saying to the false teachers in Corinth, oh, you like the misusing the Old Testament? I can outdo you. And um, so on. So, and then you have secondly, besides ad hominem argumentation, you have non-contextual midrashic treatments of the Old Testament. Now, what do we mean by Midrash? Uh, that's a huge area. And there are different definitions of Midrash. Uh, really, it's a participial form of Darash in Hebrew, which means seeking. And it means it just means interpreting. But there are different uh, definitions of what that means in Judaism. Um, uh, I'm just going to be using it with respect to kind of that basic meaning of <coughs> interpreting. And so uh, when we speak of non-contextual midrashic treatments, we're speaking of non-contextual interpretation here, basically. And so, um, for example, uh, you remember in, in uh, Genesis 12, 7 and following, it talks about Abraham's seed, clearly a plural seed. And then the other text about Abraham's seed. And then in Galatians 3.16, Paul says, Christ is the seed. And so some have said, no, I mean, how, how can he read an individual seed from that corporate seed? Um, uh, that, that, that's just reading in an idea that really isn't there to make his point. And there are other examples that Deuteronomy 30, 12 to 14, Romans 10, um, 6 to 8. Uh, you, you, you remember uh, that, that text. Um, The righteousness based on faith speaks thus. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will uh, descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. And all this is, again, from Deuteronomy 30. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That's the word of faith which you are preaching. So uh, Paul's just reading Christ into a text that has nothing to do with the Messiah or messianic expectations. Okay. So, um, and then thirdly, besides ad hominem and midrashic treatments, there are allegorical interpretations. Um, and, and again, uh, these can be best uh, uh, illustrated from Philo, that first century allegorist from uh, Alexandria in, in, in Egypt. And um, 
he would give a literal meaning. He was concerned about the literal meaning. And then he'd just give a deeper, a deeper meaning that really had nothing to do with the literal meaning. And uh, so this, this allegorical, it does overlap with midrashic treatments. For example, remember Deuteronomy 25.4, 1 Corinthians 9.9. We're going to look at that uh, later today. But there Paul is um, making a quotation. And uh, he says, for it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God is not concerned about oxenism. And, uh, uh, and, and he goes on, on to say, uh, in response to that question, amazingly, um, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? So the idea is Deuteronomy 25 had nothing to do with oxen. It had to do, Paul believed, with the apostles and that the laborers were the, uh, the wage. Um, so he's just reading that in because it had to do all together, completely for our sake and nothing to do with us. And so um, some see that as a good example of allegorical interpretation. Uh, there are other ex examples as well. Uh, the use of uh, the Old Testament in Genesis 424, um, uh, Genesis text there, Galatians 4.24 about um, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, uh, but I'm not going to go into that now. And fourthly, there are atomistic interpretations. I only give you these categories because there's some of the categories given, but in fact, they really overlap. Atomistic means just picking here and there, having no rhyme or reason for uh, how you're interpreting. And so it, it really uh, overlaps. So two things need to be said about some of these examples. First, it's by no means certain that even these examples are actually non-contextual. These are usually seen as the parade examples. Given, I have more listed here, by the way. Um, and uh, take 1 Corinthians 10, for example. E. E. Ellis um, has, has written very well, uh, showing how that could be uh, a contextual interpretation, as has S. Lewis Johnson uh, in a book called uh, The Old Testament and the New. On 2 Corinthians 3, a former colleague of mine, Scott Hayman, has written Paul Moses and the History of Israel in a monograph from out of Tubingen and, and other scholars as well. Um, so, uh, and we could go on, on and on with scholars who, who have written uh, now, Albia, most of these are conservative scholars, uh, but they're writing in top-ranking uh, monograph series and in, in, in journals. Um, so, first of all, a number of scholars that have shown these may not be great examples of non-contextual use. Secondly, even if it's granted that they are convincing examples, there really are not that many of them. So that you shouldn't uh, conclude that... It, a typical pattern of exegesis in the New Testament was non-contextual just because of a few examples. Now, I don't grant that myself, but even if you did, now there's always going to be some enigmatic texts. There's always going to be some problem texts, and, and I think this is the case, especially with the Old and New. There's some texts that I'm not sure what the interpretation is. I'm not going to force an interpretation, you know, where it says in Matthew that um, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy uh, about being a Nazarene. And there's debate about, you know, does that come 
from the book of Judges with Samson, book of Jones from Isaiah 11 and 1, where it, call, or it refers to a netzer of branch um, that some relate to uh, a Nazarene. So I, I'm not sure. And, and in fact, this is good. Uh, you know, don't force because of a high view, I think as evangelicals, at least uh, the evangelicals uh, that I'm familiar with, there, there's a tendency to, to want to, or at least be tempted to force interpretations on these enigmatic texts because of a high view of scripture. And I think we should just let them lie. You know, I, I look at these difficult texts as, you know, take a putting green, you know, a green on a golf course, and, um, and, and there's uh, weeds in the green. Well, don't get a more and mow the, re the, the weeds down uh, in the Bible. Uh, let them be where they are. We might have to put around them. Um, but in fact, because of these enigmatic texts, I've known students who've gone on and done their doctorates on these texts and have convinced their non-evangelical supervisors. One example is a guy by the name of Rick Watts called the Second Exodus in Mark. Outstanding dissertation published in the WUNT series at the University of Tubingen. And he was working under two people. One of them was Morna Hooker uh, at the University of Cambridge. And she held the Lady Margaret chair at the time. And um, I, I remember uh, uh, that, uh, he was convincing her about this very difficult passage in Mark 1, which many of you probably are familiar with, where um, it starts out at the very beginning in verse 2, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, and prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, think ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And uh, it's introduced with in Isaiah the prophet. But what he first quotes is not Isaiah the prophet. It is Malachi. And then in verse 3, he quotes Isaiah. So there have been a lot of attempted resolutions of that, none that, that are satisfying. Um, but he resolved it. Maybe later in the course, I'll tell you how he resolved it. But um, he, he, he resolved it and, and, and convinced Morna Hooker. So here's a case where he had no idea what the solution was when he started out. But uh, he pulled that weed out, and no one has to, in my opinion, no one should have to put around that weed any more. In fact, I remember uh, sitting in a seminar when Rick Watts was a first-year student. I was on sabbatical because he'd been a student of mine at Gordon Conwell. And Morna Hooker was giving a paper on the use of the old and the new in, uh, in Mark and talked about this passage and how non-contextual it was. And how Mark has schoolboy knowledge of uh, the Old Testament. And then later, uh, Watts did his work under her. So uh, actually, the, these weeds, uh, from one perspective, are exciting. Um, because, you know, they, they, they really cause us to let's study it further. Let's not mow it down with a forced interpretation. So um, there'll always be some enigmatic text. Now, second objection. Uh, I'm going pretty slow here, um, but I'm trying to explain this. Uh, I'll continue this uh, in uh, the next hour after the break. We still have five minutes, but um, uh, what we'll do is if you want to ask some questions, then we can have some a time for questions. The second 
objection is a hyper-Christocentric focus. All that means is, you know, the New Testament writers were blown away. Their minds were blown by the resurrection of Christ. So then when they looked at the Old Testament, they had a Christocentric lens and saw Christ everywhere, in many cases, where he shouldn't be found. And um, so uh, Barnabas Lindards, my own uh, uh, supervisor at Cambridge, wrote a book called New Testament Apologetic, in which he argues this, that um, because of their uh, uh, lens of Christ now, they began to uh, defend uh, Christianity and by uh, misusing the Old Testament, actually seeing Christ where he wasn't. And, and by doing that, they thought they were defending the fact that he was the Messiah, seeing him everywhere. Um, others also have argued uh, more recently than Lindor's, he published his work in 1961. Others have argued uh, that the apostolic writers were so Christocentric in their understanding of the Old Testament that, uh, again, they read Christ in everywhere in so doing they distorted the meaning of the old testament and uh, one such person is peter ends who actually was teaching at westminster he's one of the people involved in this debate that i was talking about at westminster theological seminary in philadelphia now, there, there is a westminster also in uh, california his work is called inspiration and incarnation um colon evangelicals in the problem of the old testament he also has a, an article called Apostolic Hermeneutics and an Evangelical Doctrine of Scripture. He prefers to use uh, the view of, he has a, Christus, a Christotelic view of the Old Testament instead of Christocentric. And Christotelic really means for him that they had this lens of Christ. And what they were mainly concerned about was what was the goal of the Old Testament? Christotelic. They saw it as a Christotelic go. So when they looked at all these passages, they read in uh, a messy that they were talking about something about the Messiah and uh, how this was going to achieve the goal of this coming, this particular passage, whatever it may be. Um, and uh, by the way, I like Christotelic. Um, I think that's it's it's it, that's good. Yeah, I think the whole testament has its goal in Christ. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 4 that Christ was the telos of the law. Now, some say that the end of the law, I think there's a double meaning there. I think end, it can mean end or it can mean goal. And I think both are probably in, in mind. Um, but that doesn't mean we should read Christ in everywhere. Now, I do believe, and I'm going to try to... Um, show this. Well, I might as well do it now. Um, I was going to do it a little bit later. I won't come to it. I'll, I'll, I'll remind you. Um, uh, but you could also use, besides Christotelic, which I do like, Christocentric. And I think Christ is in every verse of the scriptures. Now, Walter Kaiser accused Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, of being just not correct. It's like you could see Christ in every verse of the Old Testament. You know, if you look at the prophecies, you know, this, uh, Kaiser has a more minimal, minimalistic view of seeing Christ in the Old Testament. But can you really see him in every verse? That sounds kind of like the opposite. That, that, that kind of sounds a little pushing it a little bit, doesn't it? Um, but actually, I would contend that um, you can see Christ in every verse of the Old Testament. How? And I'll conclude with this. 
I call it the London-ocentric view of roadways uh, related to the Christocentric view. And that is, let's say, I don't know, maybe in the late 1800s or early 1800s, somebody wanted to go to London. And they lived in a little hand. And uh, the only way to get to London was to go by a path to the larger village uh, that's opposite of London. So you've got to go that way. And then uh, uh, from, from that village, you go to a town on, uh, on a, an actual road, maybe just enough room for one, one wagon. You get to the town and, and maybe that's parallel. It's going parallel with London. And, and then you, you, you go to a bigger town uh, that begins, you know, the, it's a bigger road and it, it begins to um, go more in the direction of London. And finally, you hit a big city with a really big roadway. London and, and you get there. But you have to start out by going opposite to London. And so there are passages that look like they have nothing to do with Christ. So you've got to go to the wider context. Do it organically. And eventually, usually in a book, you're going to hit Christ. And it's going to relate to the passage that you've been dealing with in some way. And so that's the organic way, actually, to, to relate to Christ. So uh, obviously, in a certain sense, I can't say you can find Christ in every verse, but you can relate every verse to Christ. That's a, that's a little different contextually, okay? So let's, let's stop there. I'm going to talk about some more objections, uh, but I think it's time for a break uh, now.